Change often brings conflict with it. And if there's major change, the potential for great conflict grows. Change can be threatening. To some people, change feels like a criticism of the past. And since they appreciate the past, they might resist change in the present. Others might not understand the reason for change. Or they may not understand the change itself. So they too resist that path. Anytime that change comes to an organization, a business, a family, the resistance to that change is what can often lead to conflict. And this is no less true within a church. Major change often includes major conflict. Now, I am not arguing that all change is good. In fact, my wife will tell you, if you choose to ask her, that I can be very slow to change. Uh, Douglas Peck, our church administrator, might also attest to that fact. I tend to be, you know, one of the resistors. I'm not often an early adopter. So I'm not condemning those who may take a while to adapt or adjust to new ideas or to change in general. But I'm also not arguing that all change is bad, though some changes may be. I simply want us to note the relationship between change and conflict, and especially how that can and does occur within the church. We've been on a hiatus from our study of Acts for the last three weeks, so I want to remind you of the major transformative, unprecedented change that's happening in the early church where we left off at the end of chapter 10 in Acts. The two rivers of Gentile and Jew have reached confluence and have been joined together into one as the church. That was revolutionary. And imagine for the Jews whose culture and religion was so deeply ingrained with the belief that Gentiles were unclean, that relationships with Gentiles were to be severely limited, and that if a Gentile were to become a Christian, he or she would first need to be purified by becoming a Jew, by converting to Judaism. So imagine for them the shock of seeing and hearing that the Holy Spirit had come upon the Gentiles. That God had accepted the Gentiles as equals with the Jews in his kingdom. So make no mistake, this change was an earthquake that shook our early sisters and brothers. And as you can imagine, conflict arose with this change. And it's this conflict that we're going to read about today. But beyond reading, I want us to take note of how the church leaders handled this conflict and what principles we can learn from them and apply to ourselves today. Because this is neither the first conflict the church will face, nor will it be the last, but it is the one with perhaps the most at stake. I'll be reading the first part of Acts 11 this morning. Now, just remembering the context, Peter was in Joppa and he had received that vision from the Lord. And I'm not going to review all of it because Peter himself in his own words is going to review that for us today. But Peter had gone from Joppa to Caesarea and had ministered and spoken to the believers there or the God-fearers at Cornelius the centurion's house. And we'll see what happened in a moment. 
Now where we are is that Peter, after staying in Caesarea for a while with those new believers, he travels back to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of the church. That's where we pick up our story now in Acts chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord! Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then... Even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The first principle in uh, dealing with conflict within the church, and actually, before I, before I state that first principle, I want to back up a moment. And I want you to notice how this passage repeats almost word for word what just happened in the previous passage. If you see that in biblical text, if you see repetition, it's because there is great import attached to that account or to those words. Luke sees this event as pivotal in the life of the church for the rest of time, actually for all eternity. So when he repeats it here, it's not just because Luke didn't have a good editor it's not because he didn't have someone who said, oh, you know, Luke, you just wrote the same thing twice. It's because he sees this event as absolutely fundamentally foundational to the identity of the church of Jesus Christ on earth. And that's why he emphasizes it. The first principle in dealing with conflict is to wait. 
Now, there's more to it than that, but I just want you to learn and remember that word. If you're taking notes, you can write down that word. You can complete the phrase a little bit later. But the first principle is to wait. The rumors of what Peter had done, what he had been involved with, arrived in Jerusalem before he did. Right? It says, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So they heard that before Peter arrived. And people were talking, weren't they? Man, I can just imagine. They were going a mile a minute. Did you hear what Peter did? Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what happened? And the circumcised believers, and this, this group is going to resurface again later in Acts, a group that called themselves the circumcision, uh, were holding very, very firmly to this belief that if anyone were to come to Jesus, they had to first convert to Judaism. We've already seen this before, right? So they, they, it's called the circumcision group. So the circumcised believers in Jerusalem had already passed judgment on Peter. They had already decided that he was a lawbreaker, a rebel, and had become impure and unclean, that he had compromised himself through this interaction with Gentiles. And they had not even spoken directly with him yet. So the principle about waiting is this, wait before passing judgment. When we hear about change, or maybe specifically when we hear something negative about someone else or about a group of people, wait before passing judgment. Though it's taken me many years, I think I am finally learning that there are always two sides to a story. And yet there's something in me and in most people, if we're honest with ourselves, that we want to assume the worst about a person or a situation, particularly a person or a situation who appears to be on the opposite side of an issue from us. And we, we, we take that, that assumption, we, the, the term confirmation bias has come into our vocabulary over the last uh, you know, years, particularly as we deal with uh, the rapidity of news and how it can circulate around the globe so quickly through um, digital media. And we're quick to believe that confirmation bias. We're quick to believe the worst of our adversaries. We're quick to review, to believe the worst about other people, especially other people with whom we disagree. And unfortunately, we're also often quick to pass that information on. This is what had happened in Jerusalem. Those who felt strongly about their Jewish identity and were already anti-Gentile, if you want to put it that way, they were very quick to react to what they had heard that Peter had done. The first time I can remember being confronted with this in myself was when I was in uh, high school. I think I was in uh, 11th or 12th grade maybe. And I remember it vividly in part because it happened on the sidewalk right out there in front of Calvary International Church. What had happened was this. I had heard a rumor of something that had happened, something bad that had happened, to an individual who had graduated from the same high school that I was currently studying at. He had graduated a couple years ahead of me. And uh, during his time in um, high school, he was always kind of a rebel. Uh, he was, 
getting in a lot of trouble, you know, kind of dabbling around in things that weren't very wise to dabble around in. So I heard this rumor, and it was completely unverified. It was just that. It was a rumor, but it was something bad that supposedly this individual had done and the consequences of that, and I latched onto that rumor. And I remember standing out here on the sidewalk after a Sunday morning service, I had a group of my buddies around me, and we were talking, and I said, man, did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what happened to him? Man, it just goes to show you, you know, he was on the wrong track. And at that point, we were interrupted in our little circle there. Uh, not many of you, but some of you probably remember the Milligan family, and particularly Esther Milligan, uh, the mom. She inserted herself right into that group and looked right at me. She had overheard what I was saying, and she said, Nathaniel, do you know that that's true? Do you have proof that that's true? I felt about this big. I just kind of shrunk up into myself. And she said, if you, she said two things, actually. She said, first of all, you should never pass something on that you don't know is true. You should never judge an individual until you hear the whole story. And she said, secondly, even if this were true, there was no need for you to pass it on. And talking about uh, it takes a church to raise a child, um, that was my experience that day. It wasn't just mom and dad, um, and I'm grateful for that, that, that I grew up in a church where there were other adults, there were honorary aunts and uncles that were willing to speak truth into me, and I needed that, and I've never forgotten that event. I've never forgotten that moment. Because anytime we hear something negative, prejudicial, something bad about a brother or sister in Christ, something bad about a particular group of brothers or sisters, the first thing we should do is wait, be silent, and pray. Do not assume the worst. Do not condemn the person before hearing their side. And do not spread that information. Don't forward the WhatsApp message until it's been verified. In this situation... Some of these early church members had failed in this regard. So by the time Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, there was already a lot of unrest. They had already assumed the, the worst, and in their minds, they had already condemned Peter as unclean. But this brings us to our second principle. The second principle is this. I'm going to give you just the first word again so you can get it down. Ask. Ask. This is a way in which eventually the Jerusalem church got things right. Although initially they passed judgment and they passed around the negative news before hearing the entire story, they do eventually go directly to Peter and they confront him with what they have heard. Now, they get it right by going straight to the source, but they get it wrong because they don't ask, they accuse they come to him, you ate with Gentiles in their home. Rather than saying, Peter, we have heard that you entered Gentiles' home. And not only did you enter a Gentile's home, which makes you ceremonially unclean, but you ate. You shared a meal with them, which is prohibited under Jewish law. Now, Peter, can you explain this to us? Can you tell us what happened? So they got it right by going directly to the source. They got it wrong by the way in which they approached. So when we hear a negative report about someone, specifically within conflict within the church, it's and, and it's important enough that we need resolution, 
You see, that's the other thing that we have to be careful about in ourselves. We don't always need to know. We oftentimes want to know, but we don't always need to know. But if it's a situation in which we truly do need resolution, then we should go directly to the person or to the group involved. And rather than accuse, ask. Ask them respectfully to explain themselves. This does not mean that we have to agree with their explanation. It doesn't mean that what they did was necessarily right. But it's the process that is important to reach the appropriate end and decision and judgment, if you will. And I can't tell you how grateful I have been every time I have made the choice to do this. Every time that I've heard a negative report, every time I've heard an accusation, everything I've heard something bad about someone or a group of people, how grateful I've been every time that I have reserved judgment, waited, prayed, and then gone directly to them to hear their side. It doesn't mean that everything is always resolved. Sometimes exactly what I heard was exactly what happened and it was true. But in a majority of cases, I learned that the news that I had originally heard was incomplete or was poorly nuanced or sometimes even totally false. I remember a specific time very recently, well, very recently, I should say about two years ago, where I had heard something. Someone had told me something that an individual within the church had said. And it was deeply disturbing. And again, I had heard it through the grapevine. And so, because it was so disturbing to me, I went directly to that person and I said, listen, someone told me, I heard that you said this. Is that what you said? And the person was horrified. They said, I never said that. And they explained how what they had been said was misunderstood. It wasn't just misunderstood, it was wrong. It had been applied incorrectly by the person who had heard it. So I'm very glad I had gone to them in that situation. But that's a reminder to us not to jump to those conclusions and to ask the source. Not accuse the source, but ask the source. Now we get to the third principle. So the first two principles so far have been wait. Wait to pass judgment until you know the whole story. The second one is ask. Ask the source. And thirdly, listen with patience or listen patiently. This is an, uh, an example where both sides in this conflict get it right. We see the patient listening practice on both sides, but we'll start with Peter. Remember who Peter is. He's the primary leader of the church. He was one of the closest disciples to Jesus himself. He was the preacher when the church was born on Pentecost, and he has just come from this incredible spiritual high in which he received a vision directly from the Lord where he heard Jesus himself speak and then he saw unprecedented church growth among the Gentiles. Now, I put myself in Peter's place. If I were Peter, I think I would have had a very hard time listening to these accusations and being patient. Are you kidding me? I have just heard a message from God himself. Jesus has spoken to me. And by the way, I am Peter. And Jesus said that on me, the rock, he's going to build the church. Who are you to question me? I think that might have been my re reaction, at least in my heart. 
And that can often be the response. Um, the, the many Christians, many Christian leaders, but also just all of us, that, that we're tempted to respond in that defensive, attacking way when we're questioned about something we've done or something we've said. But Peter responds in humility. He was all those things. He was the primary apostle that was leading the church. He was the one through whom the Holy Spirit spoke at Pentecost. He is the one who just received this vision from the Lord. He is the one that God used to first break through this Jew-Gentile barrier. He's all those things, but he responds in humility. First, he listens to their concern. And their concern is genuine. They may not have expressed it well, but their concern is genuine because they hadn't had the benefit of this vision. They hadn't experienced what Peter had experienced. And without that experience, without that vision, Peter would have reacted the same way. We know this because when God tells him in the vision, Peter, kill and eat these unclean animals, he responds, no way. Remember I told you that surely not. We read that surely not today and we hear surely not. That's not what Peter said. He said, no way, no way. I have never, never in my entire life eaten anything unclean. Nothing unclean has ever passed my lips. No way, Lord, I'm not doing it. So we know Peter would have responded the same way without the benefit of the vision and the aftermath of that vision. And for the Jew, table fellowship was extremely important. This is actually a theme all through Scripture, relating to one another over food. Uh, think about it, in the Exodus already, very close to the beginning of, of, of Scripture, we have the Passover meal, a picture of God communing with his people. Even earlier than that, we can go back and, and remember when Abraham receives the, the three visitors, um, one of whom was, was a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ and two angels, and he receives those visitors, and there's a combination there of the prophetic when they, when they are prophesying to Abraham that he's going to have a son, but then also when Abraham pleads with them to spare Sodom and Gomorrah where his nephew Lot was living. What's the first thing that Abraham does? He asks them to wait, and he prepares a meal for them. Uh, and then we can fast forward to the end of time, and, and Scripture ends with this vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb, of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, sharing a festive celebratory meal with his church. So the theme of relationship over food, and, and the word, kind of the theological term for that is table fellowship, was very important to the ancient Jew, especially because the law prohibited them from sharing a meal with the Gentiles. If they did that, that was sinful to them, and they were then ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, and they had to go through a whole process of purification. So, as a Jew, Peter listens to their concern. He hears it, and he understands where it's coming from, that at least some of their response was coming from zeal for truth and even zeal for Jesus himself. And because he listens first in humility, he then responds with patience. Instead of writing them off, instead of telling them to go you nowhere, instead of saying you have no right to question or accuse me, he starts at the very beginning and he tells them the whole story. 
Peter builds a bridge for them. God had built the bridge for Peter. The bridge was the vision and the events that followed. And so Peter comes to the leaders in Jerusalem, the Christian church, and he, he builds the bridge for them as well. And Peter's willingness to listen, even to listen to accusations, and to be patient with his accusers is what ultimately brings those accusers on board with this dramatic change in the church. Now, let's look at the other side for a moment, because Peter's accusers, or questioners, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt here, Peter's questioners also demonstrated patient listening. Even though they had already made a judgment about Peter, and even though they approached him in an accusatory manner, they did listen, apparently without interrupting, as Peter defended himself, as Peter shared his perspective. It's also interesting to note here that Peter has six witnesses with him. I don't know if you caught that in the passage, but because it, he doesn't state it in narrative form, but as he's talking about it, he says, these six witnesses were with me. These six men were with me. So he had taken witnesses with him, and they were able to attest to the truth of what Peter was saying. Now, uh, this remains a challenge for us today because when, when we are in disagreement with someone or with a group of people, specifically to, to apply this to the context of Scripture here, specifically regarding a change in the church, we need to listen patiently to their views. That can be very hard to do. We need to seek to understand their concerns and hear their heart. That doesn't mean that ultimately we must agree with what they think. And it does not mean that all change is good. As I said before, it doesn't mean that all change is bad. But the way we go about addressing the conflicts that surround change is of fundamental importance. Listen patiently regardless of which side you find yourself on. The final principle that I want to draw out of this passage in dealing with conflict surrounding change is the word focus. Focus. Focus on the essentials. So the beginning, Peter's accusers are focusing on a non-essential. They don't realize it's a non-essential, but it isn't essential. The issue of whether a Jew should share a meal with a Gentile. By the end of Peter's story, that issue has become totally moot. It's unimportant because now they see that Jew and Gentile have been made one through Christ and in the church. In this context, what are the essentials on which they focus? It's, they're, they're threefold. Firstly, God's word. Secondly, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, repentance. The impelling force behind what happened to Peter was the word of the Lord that came to him in the vision of the unclean animals. It was Jesus speaking directly to Peter in this vision? A number of times. How? Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Three times that's repeated. And then the words, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The word of God, the speech of Christ, that is an essential in this passage. And actually in all, in all of time and in all of Christendom, the word of God. The second essential is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon the Gentiles. 
I don't know if you remember four weeks ago when I pointed out that Peter was interrupted by the Holy Spirit as he preached in Cornelius' house. Here he says it directly. He says, as I began to speak. I mean, I, I could imagine Peter, you know, he's like, okay, I, what an opportunity. Look at all this. I've got all these people gathered here. All right, I'm ready to go. And he gets through, you know, a couple sentences of introduction and bam, the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles. And he's like, ah, uh, I have, I have, I have more to say, God. And he realizes, I don't need to say it anymore. I don't need to say it anymore. The Holy Spirit has already come. And he he takes pains now to the church in Jerusalem to say that the Holy Spirit came on those first Gentile believers just as he had come upon them, the Jews, at Pentecost. And in context it's indicated that they had a very similar experience. The sound of rushing wind, the tongues of fire, and the speaking in tongues. There was visual, visible evidence that the Holy Spirit had come. Now, I've told you this before. That's not normative in the book of Acts. In other words, we don't see that happen every time the Holy Spirit indwells new believers. Why would it happen here? This is the Gentile Pentecost. And it's God showing his church, specifically the Jewish church, but also the Gentiles, you are equal. You are equal in my sight. There's not a hierarchy of Jew and Gentile. So the Jews received the Holy Spirit for the first time in this way. Now my spirit is coming upon the Gentiles and you Gentiles, you are going to receive the Holy Spirit for the first time in the same way. So that no one will ever be able to say in the future, well, the Jews received a special anointing and the Gentiles received a lesser anointing. It's the same. And I think that's why Luke makes such a big deal of these passages. The Holy Spirit makes them one. He indwells all believers alike. So by the Holy Spirit coming upon the Gentiles, that's God's seal saying they are genuine believers. They are redeemed. And Peter himself says, if the Holy Spirit came on them, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? The first essential is the word of God. The second essential was the indwelling of the Spirit. And the third essential was repentance. As those who had opposed Peter so recently heard his words and noted the witnesses with him, they're convinced. They have no further objections. (laughs) And the way they say it at the end is, is really kind of funny. And it shows that they're still struggling to accept this because they say, even to Gentiles? Even to Gentiles, God has given the gift of repentance that leads to life? But notice they still mention repentance there as a non negotiable. So race and culture were no longer a barrier. They were no longer a dividing wall. But repentance was still and will be for all time essential. So then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That also makes clear that the Holy Spirit coming upon the Gentiles did not mean that the Gentiles had not repented or did not need to repent or God had not given them the gift of repentance. It's actually showing that by God's grace, they had repented. It's a non-negotiable. It's an essential. 
So over the course of this account, Luke reveals that the word of God, the seal of the Holy Spirit, and the repentance of the Gentiles are essentials. And by the grace of God, even the circumcision group of the Jewish Christians were willing to focus on those essentials. I don't mean to oversimplify theology or doctrine, but this does provide a guideline for us as well. When we face conflict or disagreement over change in the church, let us seek first the essentials. What are the essentials? What does the Word of God say? How do we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as individuals, but also the lives of the life of our church corporately? Because as I said, when the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles and then earlier the Jews, there was visual sign. That's not normative. It wasn't normative then. It's not normative now. So the evidence of the, of the presence of the Holy Spirit comes over time. It comes through the fruit of the Spirit that grows in a person, that grows in a community. And, uh, you know, fruit takes time. You can't rush fruit. <laughs> and finally, um, repentance. Repentance will always be essential to salvation. Repentance will always be an essential to the daily Christian walk on this earth. And as I've said before, you know, we, when we share about Jesus and his gospel, we often like to skip over that part, don't we? But the early church understood that it was a non-negotiable. Uh, recently, I read an account, uh, a story written by a, a man named Ken Sand. And Ken Sand uh, has written a book called The Peacemaker, and he's done a lot of work in um, bringing peaceful resolutions to conflicts between people and between groups in churches. He's dedicated his life to that. And he tells this one story where he was traveling on his way to meet with uh, a church where the elders and the pastor were in intense and deeply grounded conflict. And uh, he had sent them some preparatory uh, material to prepare the way for his coming as a mediator to lead toward peacemaking. And he said when he arrived, he met with each group separately and there was just no progress and there was so much pain and there was so much anger and, and frustration and bitterness and there was no common ground. I said until he asked them a question and he said, how would this conflict be different if Jesus had never resurrected from the dead? So if the resurrection had never happened, how would this conflict be different? There was silence for a while, and then eventually someone said, there would be no difference. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, there would be no difference in this conflict. And it was at that point that, that Ken Sand was able to say, do you understand the point of the essential centrality of the gospel? So if, if this conflict we're having now is not affected at all by the resurrection of Jesus, then what are we doing? And ultimately that one part was able to bring about resolution why? Because of the focus on the essential, going back to the gospel, going back to the word of God. So when we talk about all these things being non-essentials and ending with repentance, there's an illustration I would give that I've used before, 
Um, for those of you who understand kind of the, the geography surrounding the city of Sao Paulo, let's say that you have gotten on, you, you want to go down to the coast, right? And you've gotten on uh, Rodovia dos Imigrantes, and you're heading toward the coast. And this actually happened to me once, uh, not too long ago. So I'm speaking from personal experience. And I'm quite a, quite a ways down that highway. We haven't started going down the, the hill, going down the Seja or the mountains yet, but I'm still at the top. And all of a sudden, I remember, I have no money. I have no money in my pocket. And I know that the toll booth is coming up. What am I going to do? Because at that point, there are only two choices. I got to find a way to get money or I'm not going to the coast. Those are my only two options, right? That toll booth there, is, it's like repentance. It's like the essentials. I don't have to repent. But if I don't repent, I'm not getting to the beach. You understand? And so... Uh, the end of the story, by the way, is I was praying, 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 and I, there was one last gas station on the way, and I stopped, and they happened to have um, a Banco 24 Horas, and I was able to withdraw some cash. Um, actually, it, it's a little more exciting than that. There were two of them, and the first one didn't work, so I got down to my last option, and, uh, and I was actually on my way to a funeral that I was supposed to speak at, so anyway, God was very merciful to me. Uh, in these days, and we don't, we don't live with very much cash. But, but the point I want, well, I want us to understand is that repentance, or for that matter, the Word of God, the, the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church, they're non-negotiables. So we don't necessarily have to surrender to those things. We don't have to surrender to the Word of God, to the fruit of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit in us, or to repentance. But if we don't, we will not be walking with the Lord. If we don't, we will not come to salvation. If we do not repent, we will not get to the beach. Now, we have walked through a few brief principles on how we can address conflict in the church and specifically conflict related to change. This is not an exhaustive manual for dealing with conflict. I was only pulling out the examples that we have from this passage. And what are they? We wait. We wait to pass judgment. We ask the other side or other person to explain themselves. We listen patiently and we focus on the essentials. But we have not asked ourselves, or we have, and we have not asked this text, the major question that we need to ask. And that question is, why? Why make efforts to deal with conflict? Why did the early church resolve this conflict? This is actually the unspoken purpose of the passage. The why is why Luke wrote it and included it in his manuscript. You see, if this conflict had happened today, I can imagine that the church would have split. And instead of having one church, there would have been two churches with continued animosity between the two. There would have been the Peterites, the Peterites denomination, and there would have been the Circumcisionites on the other side. And the two rivers would have touched briefly at confluence and then like the same poles of two magnets shot off in different directions again. Sisters and brothers, the main point of this passage and the reason the early Christians worked through that conflict was to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. We've already talked about unity a lot and as you know, there are legitimate reasons for church splits 
And there are legitimate reasons for individuals and families to leave a local church and join another. But what we see consistently in Acts is a commitment to unity, to working toward that unity, toward dealing with the issues that were hard issues, working through forgiveness, listening to others, seeking resolution, and focusing on the essentials. And as we saw in this passage, it takes work. It often requires a willingness to withhold judgment until we know the full story, to make the effort to ask and seek out the truth, to listen to one another with patience, seeking understanding, and a willingness to let peripheral preferences go and focus on the essentials in which we find unity. Because the unity of God's church is a testimony to the unity of the Trinity itself. And when the world sees a church that can't get along with itself, backbiting, bitterness, splits, divisions, it doesn't reflect well on God himself. Now, as I said earlier, I understand that there are legitimate times where there need to be church splits. When there's question of sin that won't be confessed or won't be recognized, bad interpretation of scripture that again won't be recognized or won't be repented of, there come a time where there has to be a separating because God will not align himself with evil. God will not join himself with, with sin. So I understand that. But I'm talking about those times when our unwillingness to focus on the essentials is what leads us to division. And that's not right. Because the unity of his church is a testimony to the unity of the Trinity. I just want to close and leave you with this last verse, one I've shared with you before from Ephesians 4, chapter 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's a call to all believers that we make every effort, and, and that every effort means uh, a godly efforts, of course. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Whether that means asking for or receiving forgiveness, whether it means these four principles that we've just worked through, a willingness to focus on the essentials and let peripherals go, whether it means to ask, to listen patiently, or to wait. This is the call that God has on his church. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for treating unity in the church so cavalierly. But thank you also for showing us that even our, our, our brothers and sisters, our, our forebears in Christ, the, the earliest believers, those sisters and brothers of ours who are our ancestors in the faith, they, they didn't always get it right either. And I pray that you would inspire us to make every effort to keep the unity of your spirit through the bond of peace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.